0: Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast, where we feature unscripted interviews with graduates of the United States Military Academy Class of 1991. The Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast with your host, Jamie
1: Schleck, starts now. All right. Welcome, everybody, to this edition, this special edition of the Old Grad Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Schleck, and tonight is a real treat. For the first time in the history of the old grad podcast, we will have somebody on who is not a member of the class of 1991. In fact, it is uh, none other than our commandant, uh, General uh, Bramlett, who uh, served um, a 38 year career uh, culminating with, a, um, with command of a force Com. And we're delighted to have him here. He's joining us from Hawaii. So sir, are you there? You hear me okay? Uh, Jamie, I've got it, yes. Awesome. Awesome. Well, sir, it is it is a tremendous pleasure, and I'm so grateful to you to take the time uh, tonight to talk to us on the eve of our 30th reunion, which is going to be a week from tonight that we have our 30th reunion. And um, I, as I mentioned to you, this Old Grab podcast, for me, has been a labor of love. This is uh, something that I put together about three years ago, and it was really in response to our class giving goals. I was assigned as the class giving officer for our class. And this was an idea that came about through some conversations with classmates, wouldn't it be neat to have like a podcast where we got the interview and learn about what's going on with our classmates. And so um, it was um, really the brainchild of a number of us that came up with this idea. And it's really been a, a fun project for me for the last three years, as I've moved us toward our 30, 30 year reunion and our class gift. And we really had we really had four objectives with this podcast. Uh, the first was to foster continued relationships among our classmates. It's to remember our fallen classmates. Uh, it's to connect us closer to the activities of West Point and also to celebrate the accomplishments of our classmates and we're needed to lift each other up. And uh, so this has been a tremendous, a tremendous experience for me personally. And I hope to continue it after the 30-year reunion. I have some other designs on how I might want to modify this, but it's been a lot of fun. And and what has happened thematically through this podcast is your name has come up a number of different times. You're such an influential person uh, to our class, to so many of our classmates. And um, so I'm grateful that we get a chance to talk to you tonight. So, So first and foremost, where are you? What's going on? Give me the lay of the land in terms of. Uh, your, your life there. You're joining us from your, your office there, I think, in, in Hawaii, right?
0: Well, yeah, in matter of and in the house, first off, congratulations on your 30th reunion. I mean, that really makes me feel old. Uh, your classmate, uh, Joe Ryan, called me out when he took command of the 25th and made him mention that I was a co- your class commandant. And I looked at him and I realized, my God, he's a major general. This guy was once a cadet. I mean, I age five years right there, but in any case, okay. congratulations. Uh, my, my regret is my late wife, Judy, would not be here. If she were here, she'd be crowding me off the chair because she loved our tour duty at West Point and particularly close to many of her classmates. And I've just said we lost, lost her to cancer uh, 12 years or so ago, a little over 12 years ago. And, um, and I think about her when, whenever I talk of your class, because so many of your classmates uh, were lurking at our house. Uh, most of your female classmates would be in there and, and uh, I didn't run them off, but they would be hanging around the house.
1: Yeah, I'm so sorry for your loss, sir. Um, but I, I, do, I do recall vividly having a conversation with my classmate, uh, Becky Canis Margiotta, and telling the story about how she was in your house in Jim alpha. <laughs> And I guess you were coming home and she was like, you got to get out of here. You're, you're in the wrong uniform or something. Right. So that was kind of a fun memory that she shared with us.
0: Yeah, that was the, the rules were the, those things that she learned or did. I could not use for um, action other than anything that was immoral or illegal. But things like wearing gym alpha when you weren't supposed to. I had to live with that. So
1: so we're going to get back to your time as a comm in the arc of this podcast. So I definitely, I'm very fascinated sure. to hear about that experience of the behind the scenes, but first and foremost, can you tell me more about what it is that you're doing right now living in Hawaii, what your, what your role is. I know that you're very active on some volunteer boards and you're very passionate about the Nisei sh- soldier story. And maybe you can give us kind of a lay of the land of what's going on there in your world.
0: Well, it, as you all can do the numbers, I'm, I'm, uh... Your 30th reunion, I'm looking at my 60th reunion in a couple of years. So at this point in life, uh, I've slowed down quite a bit my volunteer activity. And when we came to Hawaii, I, as you suggested, we, uh, Judy and I, uh, because we'd never had a community threw ourselves into establishing our, our presence here in a community in Hawaii. And so we did, uh, we chose volunteer work to do that. And uh, over the years, I've done a lot of, of volunteer work you would suspect the USO, the Armed Services YMCA, the Army Museum, Boy Scouts, uh, Pacific Asian Affairs Council, the list goes on. Uh, What you'll find as you get older, if you have the time and the energy, there's no shortage of work you can do as a volunteer to help your community. So that's sort of where where I am now. As I said, I'm winding down a lot of the volunteer activities. as I should should mention, I remarried uh, a few years ago. And so my, my wife, Nora, and I uh, get out and play golf. We love golf. Uh, with the COVID, that's one of the things you can do in Hawaii without showing your card or masking up and things like that.
1: Yeah, Hawaii is pretty hardcore about the whole COVID thing, right? I mean, I was just telling you the story before. My son is in Hawaii, and he got turned around in the airport because he had the wrong PCR test. He had a PCR test from Quest Diagnostics, which is a very well-known laboratory. And they're like, sorry, we don't recognize this. Go back to Los Angeles. Crazy.
0: Well, remember, we're, we're an island and the, the
1: neighbor islands are small
0: islands. We only have so many hospital beds. And when the ICU beds fill up, uh, we're out of luck. We can't send them to a the next state or any, any large towns. Kauai, one of our islands, I think has eight ICU beds. So once they're filled, they send them to Hawaii and Hawaii, well, Oahu, Oahu, we have told a couple of the islands, we have, we don't have room. So you're gonna to have to figure out something to do with them. That, that's the, the difficulty we have is we're very limited medical facilities.
1: Sir, I'm gonna expand the comment feed on my other screen here. Sometimes it causes a little bit of feedback for a second. Sure. So just a heads up, because I wanna be, make sure that I could see the comments that folks are, are making uh um, yeah, we're very limited medical facilities right Sir, so i'm going to expand the com- oh so there it is okay so we're good to go um so i'm able to see the comment feed so we right now we've got 10 classmates on the line watching us so i expect we're going to have several more that kind of come on and come off and, um, <laughs> and make some comments and this is a forum so we you and i are talking on this right now live it's being broadcast simultaneously on our facebook page so people are watching us they can comment on us and then what I'll do is then I'll, I'll, I'll put this onto a podcast platform. And most of our classmates listen to the podcast platform. And mm-hmm. what for me is really rewarding is that I have a dashboard where I can see it's being listened to. And occasionally I'll have a hit like in Africa or months ago in, in Afghanistan or, or in various er, you know, regions. And you mentioned uh, General Joe Ryan. He sent me an email um, about a year ago or so saying when he was in Afghanistan, how much he enjoyed listening to the podcast. And some of my classmates also, some of our classmates have also mentioned in transition and in retirement and kind of life events. This has kind of been a place to fall back on to really, it's almost like a therapeutic thing to listen to classmates, listen about where we are in life. We are so blessed. And I, I, I imagine you probably feel the same way. You know, I've got 850 sisters and brothers that I went through this experience of West Point with served in the army with and going through life events at the same time. You know, kids going off to school people getting married um, just there's this sounding board this this instant support group that we have um, through life and um, I wonder if you feel the same with your class the class of 64.
0: Well, we do. Um... There were 556 in my class. We were smaller than the core cadets, but a classmate of mine, similar to you, Johnny Ward, decided, that, like you did, we ought to tell our stories. And so he started. Uh, this is pre-podcast and the technology we have today. He started a huge book uh, where we all submitted sort of our life stories. And not not from uh, soup to nuts, but just what we were doing where we are he would update that every five years. And uh, sadly we lost him, but we have those books uh, as of 2020, 2010, we treasure it. So I encourage you to keep doing because as you get older, you'll go back to that book or you go back to your podcasts and refresh your memories, particularly before reunions.
1: You know, I think that that is one of the potential directions of this body of work is to convert it into a book uh, at maybe our 40th reunion. And so if I continue to do this podcast in the same format and talk to classmates, I may look to convert this into some kind of a book, which I would really love. Um, and so that would be something I would consider.
0: Since I saw it, there's what it looks like. Cool. That's That's how thick it is. Wow. So again, the fact that I could go right to it tells you a lot about its value to me as
1: well as to my class. So, sir, you so um, your 50 year affiliate class was a class of 2014, I think. Right. Is that right? 2014. Uh, Yes. 2014. So what was that experience like? Did you get involved working with the the class of 2014 to that 50 year affiliate program?
0: No, I did that at all. But my classmates did; they loved it. I remember I'm in Hawaii, West Point's in New York. It's it's not a bus ride there, so a lot of my classmates right. in the mainland, as we say, uh, they got up there. They they absolutely loved it. They shared it with the class, uh, doing the march back from uh, uh, the plea, doing the plea pike and all of that sort of thing, being a graduation, etc. So, but I, I personally wasn't involved.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's a fascinating program for me on the outside, right? So uh, I I say that because I've talked to several of my classmates who have been in in various different le- levels of leadership in the academy, like working in the in in um, like for the superintendent, working running the um, various different programs in the in the leadership there, and it's 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 I wouldn't say it's frowned upon, but it's really it's frustrating for the current academy leadership trying to deal with this um, relationship with the 50 year affiliate program its kind of some fascinating stories that that happen. you know with some of the old school mentality um, and being kind of um, uh, you know put upon the current corps of cadets and so um, (laughs) the I find that I find that fascinating it's kind of inside I, I I hadn't heard that but yeah the, inside, the inside, inside baseball thing, which, by the yeah. way, this is one of the things that, that people eat up. They eat up the inside, the inside stories, like what's happening, like behind the scenes. And so behind the scenes, the administration, I think, despises the 50-year affiliate program because of how much work it is and how much you have to kind of like do damage control after the old grads come <laughs> in and do all this stuff. But you, you know what I think about? I think about our 50-year affiliate program. It would have been the class of 1941. The class of 1941, you know, like Nininger hmm. was in that class, and and you know these are people that 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 were in World War II, you know, that 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 um, served served with your father. You mentioned uh, in the in the prequel, your father was a um, enlisted uh, Navy um, uh, sailor and yeah, parachute rigger. Parachute rigger. He served in World War II, I think, right. Yes. Very influential in your life. I mean, I can't imagine what that would have been like for us, class of 91, to interface with those guys. And I found actually there's a book, I got this book right here. This book is called Black 41, and it is about the class of 1941. And the reason why they're called Black 41 is because they had so many black marks against them. They there's so many discipline problems and they were such a interesting crew. Um, but anyway, that's uh, a little bit about the 50-Year Affiliate Program. I could talk all night about this stuff. We didn't even talk about this on the pre-call, but it's so fascinating. Um, sir, you mentioned Boy Scouts. Were you a Boy Scout?
0: Yes, I was.
1: And Was that influential in your life? Is that something that you think about in terms of maybe giving you an interest in serving in the military as well?
0: It didn't have that effect, but but I, I remembered... Um my time in the boy scouts and i i left the scouts as a star scout Mm -hmm. and when i i've given several speeches to to audiences about scouting and and i realized when when i thought about scouting i always regretted not having the tenacity to stay with it to make eagle scout and i realized that um, that was a lesson for me that i remembered as a star scout looking at the requirements to go through life scout and eagle scout and I just didn't, frankly, have the, the drive or tenacity to stay with it to, to make uh, jump through all the hurdles. When I was uh, a cadet, and I think when I went back as a P, the, in, in admissions said the best indicator of completing West Point uh, was if a cadet had achieved Eagle Scout. They didn't have enough data on women to, to make that. But they saw saw the correlation, and I've always thought it was the stick to it, Memphis, to go through Eagle Scout and to get through West Point, because you have to stick through both of them.
1: It is true. I mean, I both of my sons are Eagle Scouts. I am not. I'm a life for life. Uh, but Eagle Scouts, I, I mean, uh, Boy Scouts was a huge influence on my life, and I know for a number of our classmates, it was as well. And uh, it is it is interesting the the correlation and. Uh, and I was talking to our classmate, Andy Hall, who was an Eagle Scout, served in summer camps as a, as a camp counselor. And just thinking about the correlation between what it takes to finish that and, and what it w- would be like to try to get through West Point.
0: Yeah, it was the Nature Merit Badge. I remember distinctly the Merit Badge I was not able
1: to do. Mm-hmm. Was it a specific requirement in Nature oh, yeah,
0: I remember, begins when you not fail at something, but when you fall short, sometimes you remember that's the best lesson. Yes, it's exactly, remember, you had to track a constellation or something for for a month, a, a planet moving through a constellation. You had to observe an anthill each day for six weeks, and you had another one, but each one of them, you had to stay with it for a period of time, and I just couldn't discipline myself to do it.
1: Sir, uh shifting gears back to current day, I was able sure. to listen to a speech that you gave or an interview and you talked about the importance of community that you and your wife, uh, your, 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 your um, deceased wife were both um, military family. You, you, she, she was an army brat. You were a Navy brat, if that is the term. And you, you kind of moved from place to place. You didn't really have like, a, you didn't put your roots down anywhere. And so when you when you were retiring, you decided you wanted to have community to connect to. And, and so Hawaii was your opportunity. Um, I'm curious what that was like for you. Did you feel like that was a way for you to um, not just give back, but also get something in return in terms of relationships with others?
0: Well, it was both of those things. And, and you're correct. We both were vagabonds in our... Uh, in our life before marriage and after marriage, we were vagabonds and we both recognized uh, the lack of community. And so when we were able to to settle in Hawaii and we came out here, I finished up my my army career at Forces Command in Georgia. And so I moved back here. I had been stationed here, moved to the North shore. And we, because of my good fortune in the army with promotions and, and things of that nature, we, we had the, the opportunity to do volunteer work. And we are basically uh, threw ourselves into that in the North Shore community and o- island of Oahu. Those of you that remember my wife, she obviously led the way. Uh, she got out and got involved in outdoor circle and a host of things. I fell into USO, Armed Services Wife, about where you think, but you meet people and then the network of friends and supporters and, uh, involvement in the community and we really uh, luxuriate being a part of our North Shore community. That was the immediate community, the North Shore of Hawaii.
1: I find that many of our classmates are in this same phase of life. Many of us have just retired from the army or we're maybe changing jobs. We got kids that are moving out of the house. Maybe we're selling our homes, moving to new communities. So we're finding ourselves in this phase of life where we're re-routing ourselves. In communities where we have not been in for a long time we haven't lived in our, our whole lives and so this is a it's a fascinating to hear your perspective on that and um, I was talking with our classmate Christy Rooney uh, who's married to Mike Rooney um, and um, we were walking on the Appalachian Trail we celebrated our 30-year Event, 30 years to the day, we were together on the Appalachian Trail with Scott Halstead, Colonel retired Scott Halstead, who walked yes. the entire Appalachian Trail. And she was just remarking about how hard it is at this age to find a way to root into something like you don't have kids that are in Little League or in Brownies or Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts. Like there's there's not an nobody's in grammar school or middle school. There's you have to find a way to connect. And this volunteering, I think, not only is it something that you are able to continue and our mission of duty shall be done and giving back to the community, you get something from it as well.
0: Oh, no, you're exactly right. And you'll be surprised. Uh, you you just, you, you go into that uh, area you're not comfortable in. And my wife, uh, Judy, <laughs> volunteered for newcomers. And I said, my God, you are a newcomer. She said, no, she found out through a friend she could volunteer for newcomers. And a lot of their programs expanded. And she ended up going to the other outer islands. And she would take pelts of different animals in the mainland, things you take for granted, like the raccoon and the fox and things that we don't have in Hawaii. She and others would go around to schools on the Big Island of Oahu or the Big Island of Hawaii and others. And talk to kids about animals they would probably never see ever and let them touch the fur. I mean, that's, that's a, an example of the network of friends and activities that uh, Judy absolutely loved. I she drug me in the outdoor circle, which is uh, to preserve the beauty of Hawaii. And that's something I, I trained for, but I really found that I brought some organizational skill in, into the, um, the volunteer work. And I got a lot of satisfaction out of working with the outdoor circle, 90% women, I seem to fit in.
1: Mm-hmm. Sir, I, you've given a lot of time and a lot of your own personal um, effort in researching about the Nisei soldier story. Can you give me just a high-level story of, of who they were and what their contributions were? Well,
0: let, let me start by, by telling you and, and uh, anybody that listens to the podcast, you, you go through West Point, you learn military history, but the, the most decorated unit for its size and for duration of service, is the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. It's a Japanese-American Regimental Combat Team. No other unit in military history is as decorated as they are. You probably cannot name one battle they fought in, and most of your classmates, uh, unless they're from Hawaii. If they're from Hawaii, they will know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, I had occasion over the year, to, I knew about them from a movie, a 1950 movie, long before you guys were born. Uh, so I knew who they were, but when I came out here as a second lieutenant, I heard about them. And then I came back later and I met a lot of them. Um, their achievements on the battlefield, the Battle of Casino, the fighting in Italy, fighting in the Vosges, and uh, I'd go on and on, and the military intelligence in the Pacific, their work there was declassified in 1972. Uh, most people don't even know what they did. Um, the Battle of Philippine Sea, the Marianas Turkey Shoot. My dad was there uh, aboard a carrier, where we essentially destroyed the Japanese uh, what was left of the Japanese naval aviation because we knew their battle plan. Because Japanese uh, uh, soldiers, American Japanese American soldiers, had translated in could understand what the documents were telling us. I could go on, but let suffice it to say, if you remember your American history, after after Pearl Harbor, we took all the Japanese Americans, to include American citizens, moved them out of California, Oregon and California, stuck them in uh, 10 camps. I've been to two of them, and they are in the most god-awful place you can imagine. And, classified them uh, as alien, enemy aliens. They fought for the right to fight for this country and turned out to be the most decorated in our history. It's fascinating. So I, 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 I found it fascinating. And I found that when I give talks, and I've given talks all around the country, as, as well as in Europe and England, one talk, one, uh, people are amazed that this story is unknown. So, that, that's in another nutshell, The story.
1: Well, good for you for highlighting this, sir, and to uh, bring the story to, to others to to know about. Um, can we maybe now shift gears to your journey to West Point? What that was sure. like, your experience sure. as a cadet. Um, sure. So, what got you interested? A son of a of a Navy sailor going to West Point. What was that? What was that story?
0: The very short version is is a nine year old kid. Uh, My best friend's older brother was in the army. He was a lieutenant of artillery. And he would always, when he came home on leave, he would always take time to take two nine year old kids out and showed us us how to cast for mullet in Pernito Bay in Pensacola, Florida. Um, One, the Korean War broke out and he was killed in action and it shattered me. Uh, and from that day on, as strange as it sounds, I decided I would replace, replace him. I never lost my focus as a nine year old kid until I entered West Point. I just wanted to replace Lieutenant White, and finally, uh, I did.
1: Was, was he a West Pointer as well?
0: I i No, he wasn't.
1: Okay, so, um, wow, that, that's I have to. With that process for a second that's a that's a tremendous story um
0: well the, what the footnote is later uh, i was an instructor in the florida ranger camp as a ranger instructor began it's near pensacola it's in fort Walton
1: beach Eggland, and i put right? on my go ahead eglin air force base right that, that's, yeah. where, that's where it is now
0: that's yeah. yeah. it is and that's where i was stationed as an instructor and i put on my greens and my black beret and that's what we wore then and went down to Pensacola, and I found his parents. Uh, I only uh, his father had passed away. I knocked on the door, and you can imagine this. And there's this army captain in greens, and um, the his mother came to the, and she didn't reckon she had no idea what I was doing. And I referred, to, I I was your son's Jean's best friend in Perdido Bay, Bill White. Your son was killed in Korea. I made a vow to replace him, and I wanted to tell you I have done my best. So I wasn't an artilleryman, I was an infantryman, but it sort of closed the circle for me.
1: Wow. That is fascinating. Um, So, sir, uh, when you entered West Point, was there a big drop-off like, like we experienced, like the our day, first day? Were your parents there? What was that like?
0: No, no, it was, it was as different as you can imagine. Um, uh, in my case, I was a second alternate. I was not scheduled to go to West Point until the last minute because of pneumonia and somebody dropped out. And all of a sudden in June, they said, if you can be there to the sec- 2nd of July, whenever it was. Now, what we did in those days, 1960, you, you went by yourself and you went, you reported uh, by yourself and there were, there were no parents. There was no art, art. We didn't even know what, our, what, there was no description of our day. We just showed up and uh, usually you stayed, uh, people like me from California. I was living in California when I was appointed. We flew in and stayed at the hotel. The hotel had um, but, uh, cots so it was uh, where we could stay the night before and then buses picked us up and took us uh, uh, members of my class from the east coast their parents dropped drove them in dropped them off there was no parents to place to go they dropped off and left and so we all went in with no support group <laughs> And uh, then the fun started and it was, so we went right into central area. There was no general orientation. We went, we came out of central area and people started screaming at us.
1: Let you right up, Let you right up. Did, uh, does, yeah. Words of that you, effect. Did you, were you able to go home for Christmas, your plea beer? No, no, we couldn't go home for a year. Right, so my, my uncle was class of 60 and he had the story he remembered of being lined up in the hallway and the upperclassmen would have them all sing, I'll be home for Christmas. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs>
0: well, we did that. That tradition continued. Well, mercifully, the academy came to its senses. And I guess it was class of 67, finally got to go home.
1: Right. Right. That's when you say the core has, right? When they get to go home for Christmas. No, no. I
0: No, I, I don't say I do that to, to classes like your class. I, you know, I say you guys got to go home for Christmas. It doesn't count. But quite right. frankly, that was long overdue. That was that was there's no point to that.
1: Well, it's kind of a logistics thing too. Back in the day, like it was like people didn't have money to take a train or across country or or a plane, and that's why cow year they had such a long break, right? And they called that's how the name cow came into existence because the upperclassmen would come back after this long sixty day leave, and they would look like cows. I think, right? Isn't that that's what I understood it to be?
0: Well, no, I can't. I think it came from the 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 cows came home but it was it was kind of long ago. i mean there's a lot of mythology about where we got the cows uh my version is that they, they always talked about after two years you went away and you came back and they say oh the cows came home right uh, be that as may one thing about about transportation that during that era the co- cadets on the east coast their families could come and get them for Christmas. It wasn't quite as stark as you described because what, what happened is cadets had friends and the National Guard and others would fly airplanes in for training flights. And for example, uh, Midwestern cadets, uh, guard would plane would come in and take a 50 of them to Omaha and they would scatter and then they'd go back to Omaha when Christmas leave was up and they'd fly back into Stewart. But yeah, money was a consideration, but there, there were lots of ways that uh, they would announce in the mess hall, they would announce anybody wanting to go to uh, Albuquerque New Mexico, uh, come to the, the bottom of the poop deck after mess, and they'd go there and you'd sign up, there'd be a plane going to go into Albuquerque.
1: Wow. So, sir, looking at the timeline of when you were at West Point, there's two things that I recognized were, it had to be eventful the one being the assassination of President Kennedy that happened while you were a cadet. Yes. Um, and the other was the speech by General MacArthur. Can you, yes. can you talk to both of those events in, in whatever order you want? Like what was that like as a cadet in during that time frame for those two experiences?
0: It was a shock uh, when Kennedy was assassinated as, as you would have read and seen films, it was stunned. But then the tradition, when a president dies, then you assemble the troops and inform them the commander in chief is dead. And so I think it was a day after the assassination, the Corps Cadets, we were assembled out on the parade field uh, as if we were going to do a parade. We marched out there, no weapons, stood at attention. And somebody read uh, the announcement that, that uh, President John F. Kennedy, the Commander-in-Chief, is dead. And that struck all of us. And that is uh, tradition when that happens. And then we marched. I can't remember if we slow marched back in, but then we marched. There wasn't a word said other than draws attention, present arms. And then the announcement was read. And then we marched off quietly and back to the barracks. Uh, MacArthur's speech... Um, it was um, he received the Thayer Award, and it was relatively new. It was 1962, I believe. And the firsties were uh, not allowed to leave after the last class. In those days, after the last class, firsties on weekend would take off; they didn't have to go to lunch. But because it was the Thayer Award and MacArthur was going to accept it and give a speech, the firsties were restricted to not leaving until after. Uh, MacArthur, after lunch, MacArthur's speech. So I was a yearling and um, we were sitting there and firsties were just griping because they had to stay here to listen to this old man talk. <laughs> and, and remember now, 1962, many of these firsties were going to be fighting for their lives in three or four years in Vietnam. Uh, we knew about Vietnam. We knew Laos and we knew Southeast Asia was 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 something was going on. Well, Mark Arthur gave that speech, and as you've, you've read, um, or maybe uh, there was no notes. And we know now that he rehearsed it, but he didn't use a note. We could watch him. But as he talked, I remember just watching the firsties with tears streaming down their eyes. These were the same guys at my table, you know, pissing and moaning about not going on weekend. And the gravity of what he was saying. You know the long musket roar and the last words will be the core and the duty on a country, that whole speech, two thirds of the way through, I looked down the, the table and the firsties to the man were tears streaming down their eyes. They weren't sniveling, crying. They were just moved by the emotion of the words. They were as dramatic as they, when you read them and you hear the recording, now, it, was, it was an amazing uh, moment in my life to, to listen to that speech and watch the impact on the court cadets. You could hear a pin drop, and you've been in that mess hall and how noisy it is. There was zero noise. Nobody moved.
1: Do you recall it was-, was it when he first started talking? Was it like that, like it was a pin drop, or like he started talking and people realized that this was going to be like like an amazing speech that he was giving and then all of a sudden people just got down to a hush and they listened
0: uh they didn't wait for the amazing speech part you know when he started there's a normal rustling as everybody gets comfortable right Uh, when when you listen to the recording you can hear that and uh, i'd say three five minutes into it people were calming down and then the the magnificence of the words i mean they they're, they're almost poetic
1: they are. Yeah. Well, I mean, clearly you said he, he practiced it. Right. So I mean, yeah, it, was, it. it was an amazing speech and I've listened to it a gazillion times. It makes my, I get goosebumps when I hear it. It means so much to me. Um, like I, I, I can only imagine I can, having been in your shoes and having listened to it, you know, live um, it just, just incredible. So clearly, I mean, this guy's saying to himself, this is my, this is my departure, this is my, I'm leaving words, I'm I'm gonna impact this institution with my words and my departing comments. Do you think Schwarzkopf was thinking the same thing when he came and spoke to my class, uh, when he spoke to the Corps of Cadets in 91? I mean, clearly that was a super rehearsed speech. He, He did a tremendous delivery to, I remember still to this day, you know, if you want to be a 21st century leader, you have to have character. You have to have this. He talked about Audie Murphy. He talked about his you know, various classmates. It's probably the same thing. That was his MacArthur moment, right?
0: I, I don't think so. I, I, uh, I'm, coincidentally, I was looking through the, 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 the claims I kept from West Point, and I, I, have, I have his speech. Now, I think uh, Schwarzkopf was younger. He was dynamic, and he had, a, he had years ahead of him. And I think he, he he was happy to be back as alma mater. He loved West Point, as, as you you and your class picked up. And I think it was a different, uh, he wanted to be memorable because he wanted to be memorable, but I don't think he saw it as the farewell to warms. MacArthur knew, um, I think MacArthur died a year later. Uh, by the way, coincidentally uh, the battalion, I was in cadet battalion. We were selected to march in his funeral. Well, that was a whole different experience because MacArthur wrote his whole funeral, right Did down he? to he 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 write down to everything. every detail was was written by MacArthur, and i was uh, was honored to be uh, in the battalion that went down to stand. He had us he prescribed the corps cadets would march first behind the casket, and they would uh, put, I forget where we were behind the casket. But he had a standing outside where he, he lie in state at the armory in New York City. And he had the corps, the battalion. We stood at attention for hours. Um, I think attention, pray rest, attention, pray rest. While we, all these dignitaries would walk by us and go up the steps into the armory to pay their respects. He, he was in a casket. Open casket. He had his crushed hat in his corncob pipe. He had it um, on a little table next to his casket. He directed his hat would be there, his corncob pipe. So people would go up the steps. We would watch them all. Of course, we would whisper, Who is that? Who is that? Who is that? (laughs) Trying to identify all the dignitaries. And then we we marched, we took his uh, remains to the train station. And he directed that what music would be played? Nothing at the funeral march. Funeral march is 18, 108 per. He said, no, I want Quick Step 120 per, and I want peppy songs. Uh, we, were, we were brief confidentially on this whole plan when he was failing. And the, the, uh, the, the, we, they didn't have it during your era, but we had a, a, a major who was Mr. Drill and Ceremonies, he was a badly wounded veteran of World War II, and, and he was allowed to stay there. And he briefed us all and, and told us we would be shot at sunrise if we leaked. We were rehearsing MacArthur's funeral before he was dead. So, I mean, we were scared wow. to death to leak any of it. But, so when he died, we immediately got ready and went uh, on order down to New York City and participated in the funeral.
1: Right. So it's that was plan- another great event. To, to your earlier point, clearly he knew that, I mean, if, if you were a yearling when the duty on our country speech, and you were still a cadet when he died, he was really very close to the end when he gave that speech. Oh, Can yeah.
0: You... I I a to say, a cow. I, he died in 63. And, you know, I, I'm a little shaky on date, but mm-hmm. I, I, I seem to recall he died the next year. No, he was clearly frail and old. When you wow. see pictures of him, uh, then he he's uh, almost re- unrecognizable from the robust figure of World War II in Korea. Wow.
1: So, sir, you said that you didn't meet your wife Judy for like seven years. So you were initially just like a a, a bachelor when you were when you graduated OBC Ranger School Airborne School Vietnam. This you were a single. You didn't meet Judy until later later in life, right?
0: Okay. Well, you you almost got it right. <clears throat> My class, they decided we would not go to OBC. No, they, they um, the, the, my, our class was the first class in in memory to be scrambled.
1: So we uh, we had, we, hold on. we were scrambled. <laughs> oh, I want to put a pin in this in this conversation. To okay. To to well, no, no,
0: we we were shocked at the end of our yearling year to be told we were going to be scrambled, and we'll talk. We can talk about that later. So that was the first affront to our class. And then after we did branching and first assignment, they called us all in as a first class and said, okay, uh, boys, because we were all men at the time, uh, we decided for various reasons, you're not gonna go to your basic courses, none of you. In those days, we can only go five branches, infantry, artillery, armor, signal, and engineers. That's our only choices. So uh, regardless of branch, we would not go to our basic course. We would go right to the units, except as a substitute for branch orientation, every one of you gets to go to Ranger School to which several of my classmates thinking they were lawyers said, wait a minute, Ranger School is voluntary. To which whoever the officer was said, Interesting, duly noted, what I will say again, every one of you will go to ranger school in lieu of your basic course. And we did. We could go to airborne school. That was voluntary. Ranger school was not voluntary. Every one of my class, unless medically disqualified, had to go to ranger school. There's a lot of theory on why, why the Army did that. They did it for three classes, 64, 65, and 66, it was it was a mistake. I'm an infantryman. I went to ranger school. I went to the 25th Light Infantry. I didn't have a I didn't have a problem. I didn't know about borders and 90 millimeter recoilless rifles, but I learned. And that was that they said you you will learn from your sergeants and you'll learn from field manuals and you'll learn from experience. But those of you that are engineers, signal, armor, artillery, there's some technical pieces for safety You have to master. And I think a lot of my classmates, uh, it costs them initially uh, because they couldn't be a safety officer in artillery range. Uh, Armor officers, imagine going to getting a tank platoon and not going through the basic course or getting an engineer platoon and not going through the basic course. The nomenclature, all that equipment, the first time you see it is when you report to your unit.
1: Yeah, pretty humbling. Pretty humbling to be in that situation.
0: It was also humiliating at times.
1: Mm. So, sir, you, uh, your first assignment, you were in the twenty-fifth ID, right? Right. And that was a that was a, a, unit that you would later be deputy commanding general. for. Well, I, well actually, no, you were the, you were the aide de camp to the, um, to the deputy commanding general, right?
0: Uh, I I did after platoon leader time and. In, uh, in, in and bata- in a battalion.
1: Mm. So um, that must've been very difficult, you know, heading off to Vietnam. Basically you were there for how long? How, how long was your assignment there?
0: Uh, I think it was a little over 11 months. It was a your assignment. And I got a drop because I left. Uh, I left on Christmas Eve. So I got sympathy points and uh, they started rotating, and they, they dropped about three weeks off my, my return date.
1: And then from there, I think you ended up in the 101st, right?
0: Yes, I did. Second tour.
1: Interesting to me, like I look at your career, you end up going back and forth between a lot of the same major units, right? 101st, 25th, 82nd, like, and then later in your career, you end up Becoming the division commander for the Sixth ID, having never served in that unit before, right?
0: That's correct.
1: Is is that common? Do they try to do that? I, I noticed that, like our, our classmate General D. A. Sims is uh, in the First Infantry Division, having never served in that division before uh, in any of his previous assignments. Is that is that a common thing, or? Um, it.
0: Um... I don't know if that's common or uncommon. I think there's a combination of circumstances. It's availability. It's the chief of staff of the army. He makes a decision where he thinks a fit will work. Um, there's um, there's often a lot of, of senior generals discuss the, the qualities of people. Um, there's so many variables that I know the, the unit, the divisions as a rule like it when homegrown talent comes back but on the other hand because of the army the way it's structured they accept whoever it is and i went to alaska and i never been to alaska in my life but it was light infantry it was uh, cold weather training and uh, i again my my uh, judy and i just embraced the command and uh, i think we by and large when we left i think we probably got passing marks for being uh, true Alaska soldiers.
1: It's kind of like polar opposites, right? The 25th ID and then the sixth ID, like, you know, super. Yeah, no,
0: no, but, but again, that it's the polar opposites, but the isolation on both divisions helped both of us, both my wife and I, we recognized that Alaska was isolated just like Hawaii was. Not everybody thinks Hawaii is paradise. In the service, not everyone thought Alaska was paradise unless you were a hunter fisherman and you liked really cold weather. Right. Fairbanks cruises around 35, 30 below for many, many, many days uh, in the winter. And so that, that notion of isolation, both of us had faced it before uh, in, in each division. And so it helped us uh, to relate to a lot of the families and soldiers.
1: I think General Schwarzkopf was also division commander for the 6th ID. Is that right? I think he might have been.
0: He was not a division. No, he wasn't the division commander up there. He was a division commander of the 24th, uh, located oh, at okay. Fort Stewart, Georgia.
1: I, I think I just rem- remember reading his memoir. That was his favorite assignment, was the 6th. No, grade. he was
0: assigned up there. No, you, you've got yeah. that right. But he wasn't the division commander.
1: Well, sir, not to mess up with the timeline too much, but to, to jump back again for one second. Um, so then, the army sent you to graduate school. You got to get a degree, advanced degree in literature, to come yes. back and teach in the English department. Right. So, what was that like coming back to West Point as a P at that time?
0: Oh, it was um, it was a great assignment. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. After um, my first uh, seven years, six years uh, with two tours in Vietnam and, and instructor in the Rangers, and um, After graduate school, I got married in graduate school. After one year in graduate school, I got married. So it was really a great first assignment for a young marriage, um, because there's a lot of of, um, consistency and comfort in West Point. I mean, you may have looked around as a cadet. I think your, your classmates have served up there uh, would would say I mean regular relatively regular hours. Uh, you come home every day, and um, it was a great wonderful three years for for my marriage as well as uh, teaching literature and being around cadets.
1: So then, um, fast forwarding a little bit l- later, you were a battalion commander and a brigade commander in the 101st. Yes. Right? So what it was? It was the third battalion, the Raccoons, that you were uh, brigade uh brigade combat team was that was that was that your unit
0: well it was the battalion commander it was the first of 503rd 503rd mm-hmm. was in the 101st at that time now it's what over in korea where?
1: yeah yeah
0: well then they they're uh currently in italy okay yeah but then the uh, other um when i went back i commanded third brigade it was now um all the battalions were Rockasan battalions. And so it was the third brigade of the, they hadn't been dubbed the Rockasan Brigade yet. Uh, after I left, then they became the Rockasan Brigade. They were just third brigade. Actually, they were called the War Eagle Brigade when I was there.
1: Did you um, train up at West Point, like the, do the summer training? Um, did one of your units do that when you were brigade commander? No. Okay.
0: No, I, we didn't pull that assignment. But but you're right. They go. Up, they trained us when I was a, a yearling.
1: You know, there was another thing we didn't. Um, there, was this the time when there was um, there was a the awful plane crash that happened? Um, was that was that a time that was that was that was with one hundred first? Was that around the time that you were there as well?
0: Yeah, I was there. The, easily the darkest day of my army career. Wow! It was there was there was um, it was as horrible as you can imagine. And one day we lost the hundred first lost more soldiers than it lost in D Day. Two hundred forty eight killed when the plane went down, and I think there were eight crew as well. And it went down on its last leg from Gander Newfoundland to Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Uh, it was near Christmas. It was the fifteenth of December, and the families had already assembled at the. Um, essentially, it was a gymnasium to welcome them home, and families were there when the brigade commander had to go in and tell them the plane to crash. No survivors. And I'll stop there. And I, I just not. I prefer not to discuss it any further.
1: Well, it's as I, bad. I, I, it's as bad as I've just described. Oh my goodness, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. No, no, uh, no, yeah. no,
0: I, I, no, I want to remember them. In fact, I, I visited uh, Fort Campbell this summer and went to the monument that they just dedicated. Uh, the Canadians donated 240, 256 red 256 Canadian red maples that are planted behind a wonderful memorial. And it was good for me to go back. And I met one of the widows that she was there and, and we reminisced about that day. And so it's kind of it's very fresh in my memory from this summer. And I don't mean to be, be melodramatic, it's just, uh, it's, it's good that they be remembered. I'm glad you brought it up because that, those that we lost, uh, the battalion commander was a West Point graduate, class of 65, who was a personal friend.
1: What was your role in the unit at that time?
0: I was a brigade commander, I was not the the brigade commander that most of the soldiers in it, but we all had friends on that airplane, because they had decided to send all the married guys back first, because it was so close to Christmas.
1: Wow, I'm so sorry. Uh, I'm sure leading through that was probably one of the biggest challenges um, in terms of what a leader could be faced with having to lead through. So, um, I, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, well, we, we, you know, people live through our stories, right? And so we're able to talk, that's one of the reasons for this podcast is to be able to remember our fallen classmates. You know, we have 26 fallen classmates and many, many times we remember them on this podcast. And so talking about them is a part of, is a part of letting them, their, their, their memories live. So, um, yeah. oh,
0: and, and I'm glad that, that, um... Uh, that, that i am glad that you brought it up is just to go through the details it's,
1: understood yeah. it's
0: it's overly it's it's uh, it's there's other things we can talk about enough admit I, enough but it it's you're right it's it's <clears throat> important to remember them and yeah
1: uh, so then sir a few years later then you end up becoming the commandant of cadets when we are right. at this point so that that's where you intersect with the class of 91 right so I recall so vividly the influence you had on, on us as firsties. I think you were just coming in as we were rising into our first year, if I recall. And um, you, I, I remember you made this point about our, our class motto. You said, you're jealous of the motto duty shall be done. That that really means something. And it does mean something. I will tell you to my classmates who are listening to this podcast tonight. And those who will listen to it on the replay, it means something like it is a, is a measurement of our lives, of how it is that we're able to give back, you know? And so um, thank you for impressing upon us that I think duty to live by our motto. So thank you for that.
0: No, I I think your motto is the single best motto of any class that I know of at West Point. As I remember saying that, how I envied your motto. And I don't know another one that is, is as captures the spirit of West Point quite as completely as that motto does without paraphrasing duty on a country and, and of course has to rhyme with one obviously and now um, I'm glad you remembered that because I, I made a note here to mention to your class and anybody listen to podcasts? podcast how much I really admire your motto.
1: Well thank you and I, I think that you'll be you'll be You'll be happy to know that our class continues to live by this. You know, the five of this five of the active army divisions are commanded by classmates, class of '91. You know, wow. We have, yeah, we we have impressive. Yeah, we have um, we have doctors, we have nurses, we have lawyers, we have business people, we have social impact um, yeah, entrepreneurs and and nonprofit people. All I think with this common this common motto, this common um, kind of measurement, this ruler of, of our life, which is how do we give back? And so, um, so anyway, and I think you're a big part of how it is that we, we, we remember uh, that how important that motto is to us. Sure. So sir, missing from your Wikipedia bio, and is the accolades you should get for bringing optional dinner to to the core of cadets. So can, like, can you tell me the story behind the scenes? I mean, when you you came on on, on, uh, on the scene and you said, we're gonna do away with this mandatory dinner thing. I was like, oh my God, this is, this is brilliant. How did this happen? And, uh, Jamie, we, we mentioned this in the pre, I, I don't remember
0: a lot of details. I, I'd like to take credit for, for this profound change. It, to me, it made Emily good sense. A couple of things. Uh, I came in at, uh, as a commandant at the halfway mark of the class of 90. I was actually, uh, I came in in December. Uh, so I was there the last semester of the class of 90. And then the first full year I had with your class. A lot of things uh, were, were changes were being made. And I have to think this whole idea of, of optional dinner was in the mill. And it's something that I probably inherited. And uh, it made eminently good sense to me. And I saw that it, it worked so well. And there are a lot of reasons I thought it worked well. But I, I'm gonna have to, to take a bye uh, to taking a bow, if you will, on being being the, the, the guy that came up with this. I, I certainly implemented it. But I think that, uh, as, as you probably know remember, there were some a lot of changes being done to with at West Point, and I was a part of that. Uh, and I think that was one of them. Well, one thing it gave. I know the dean was very excited about that because it gave you more time to study. My study cycle as a cadet, I would have loved to finesse because I used to come back from intramural and really get started studying. And then we had to go to the haze of dinner formation. So there were a lot, there are a lot of pluses to it. It was, was easy for me to be be supportive of it and executed.
1: So there's always like a, like a, a tension that exists, I think between the Dean and the commandant in terms of the focus of the cadets, the time, How like, like, what was that like behind the scenes? I, I I've heard recently that like, you know, there's, there's, seems to be more of a focus on academics than there is on military and there's there's always this tension the tactical department thinks that the cadets have it too easy and like there's this kind of give and take and is the superintendent sort of like the um, uh, the arbiter of of how it is that we allocate cadet time.
0: yeah that's that's a good uh, that's a good description and you're you're right about the superintendent you know he's he's commands the entire post. The commandant commands the core cadets and the dean commands, if you will, the academic departments. And so there is there's a natural tension between the you know the expectation of the P's <clears throat> for study and academic excellence and, and all of that. And then the, the commandant is is the trainer. I'm get you ready for. For your role as commissioned officer and discipline, and all the things that you associate with the core cadets, it's natural. It's, it's always been, it always will be. And a lot of it, how how a severe the tension, no surprise to anybody. It's the personalities of the people. Uh, everybody wants what's best for the for the cadet. It's just they see what's best differently. And I was fortunate. Uh, and I think that the deans I worked with would say the same thing. I got along well with the dean. You know, we, we uh, The department heads now, there would be be a little clash. Um, and um, uh, I will tell you, uh, uh, I will say the, uh, the funny part, we, the reason I'm smiling, if you can see it. I, I don't know what. I can see the, it, yeah, uh, yes, sir. The thing that the, my clash interestingly enough, was with some of the, the younger officers over in the academic department. You may, you may take it for granted of computers in the rooms and, and the message boards and all of that. That was a shock to me to come back as a commandant and have cadets being able to email me with, with the question, by the way, they did. But interesting enough, these message boards where you could post certain things and you all could read them. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, I uh, remember
1: that, sir. Yeah, it, it was all kind well, of Well, like-
0: you know, I, I made some decisions and I can't remember was it was during your class time or 92. Um, but I would get a lot of commentary from uh, captains over in the academic department telling me that you know, my leadership was flawed. I was using this and that and and. Uh, And then they would uh, talk to cadets about it. The cadets would go in and whine to the peas, and the peas would say, Oh, you poor things. Uh, I'm I'm exaggerating. And then it would get back to me. Now that's tension of a different kind. (laughs) So uh, I had had enough. So one of the departments that was particularly egregious, which all were nameless, I I worked through the dean and I said, I'm going to go over and talk to your department. and I'd like your support. And I told him what my concern was. I'm tired of second guessing from a bunch of captains and majors over there who might've commanded a company. I was a little snooty about
1: that. Who Who are so, babies? You think about it now, they're babies. They're like 30, well, like 30 they were year well they were, telling
0: me, well, they were telling me how, to, how I should be a Commandant.
1: They're today's millennials, right? That's what they were. Well, Whenever
0: they were, they were.
1: Yeah. Uh, and so the dean said, sure, go
0: ahead. So I turned my head. I said, hey, get, get all your hoodlums together. I want to talk to him. So I went over and, and met with him and said, okay, I'm the SOB that a lot of you were talking about. And I said, now, here's the story. And so I laid out my roles and responsibilities. And I said, in the future, if you've got any concerns about how I meet out discipline, how I uh, have policies, please make an appointment. Uh, I will come over and give me the, your, the benefit of your wisdom. I never had any of your other problems, but I, I it reached a point, and it was the internet, and I found out that young people, young captains, somehow thought their internet was anonymous. They had to, as you remember, the message board; you had to put your name on it, and um, it, it was really um, an adjustment. Um, so, I mean, that's that's uh, a little bit off the track, but give me an no, idea how the tension could happen. But it was. Sure. It was it was one of, one of the more interesting times I had as a commandant. Go over and get a bunch of officers together.
1: The feedback I get on the old grad podcast is that these kind of stories are the nuggets of 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 the make it special. Is hearing the inside scoop of what happens. Um, so thank you for that. And I, you know we also talked on the on the on the pre call that one of the challenges that you faced with young young officers was when they were, felt like they wanted to be liked by the cadets. Like that's always a mistake, right? And that like trying to do things to curry favor with the cadets. Um, and so can you speak to that at all? Like what that's like in terms of the balance of wanting to be liked versus wanting to enforce discipline?
0: Yeah, that, that's um, that was always, um, not always, uh, potentially, an issue, because a first-class cadet is 20, it could be 26, and a, a young captain commanded a company very successful, could come back as a cadet, or a, be a, attack would be 30. Not, not a lot of difference between a 26-year-old and a 30-year-old, particularly the 26-year-old had been to poop school, and been in the army two or three years, and so there were, they were almost peers and near peers, except for captain and cadet. And there was a natural tendency, um, and you had to guard against it. And presumably, you would you would guard against that from your lieutenants. Think back when you were a lieutenant. Any of your classmates, you tended to want to be your platoon. You wanted your platoon to like you. They wanted to, you wanted to hear good things about. Oh, we got a good lieutenant, etc. And you, you sort of outgrow that. You realize that, no, what you what you need to do is gain respect and affection will follow. But if you try to do it in reverse, gain affection, then respect is going to be very, very difficult. Uh, there were there, there were a couple of, of uh, tacks, and I'm sure every commandant has that, where you had to talk to them about, you're, you're not to be their friend. You're to be their tactical officer you're to be approachable, you're to be a mentor, you're to be a guide, but uh, don't don't sell out for affection.
1: You're reminding me of the comments of our classmate who I interviewed on this podcast, Colonel Retired Ralph Paredes, who was attack officer. And he talked about how there's this tendency to like want to focus on the, the really outstanding cadets and help them sort of develop further and just ignore the cadets that were Challenged or you know weren't so great of being cadets, and he said it needs to be the complete opposite. Like if if you're a tack officer, you need to focus on the bottom third, and if they can't cut it, then they got to go. And he said that the real allegiance that he had was his soldiers. He thought of the soldiers that he was leading as like a company grade officer. Like he could not allow himself to have West Point produce a lieutenant that was not going to be able to lead those soldiers, and so. I think that is something that we're probably where, you know, I would imagine that we're all beyond that that tendency today, like these, you know, these are classmates that are leading in the army or leading companies, you recognize the importance of this in the long term, but it's a fascinating, uh, fascinating commentary.
0: I yeah, know you outgrow it. I, I, I think your classmate, uh, I wish I had uh, been smart enough to use his speech uh, about your responsibility to soldiers, these men and women are going to lead. It's a great way. to I mean, you outgrow it. it. It's an it's it's not a fatal flaw. It's just a very human flaw, that, right. that everybody outgrows it over time. Particularly as you go through rank, you get battalion command, brigade command. Uh, you can be uh, beloved, if you will, as as a senior commander, but um, not because you're buddy buddy, but because of how you handle command and how
1: you handle those that, that you lead. Sir, um, Going, uh, we're running out of time here a little bit. I wanna keep an eye on the time, but there's a couple of things I have to ask you about. Sure. Number one, when the goat was stolen in 1990, what was the insides, what was going on behind the scenes? And I, I as we talked about in the pre-call, interestingly, three of the eight cadets that were involved in stealing that goat are now general officers. One is General John Braga, Lieutenant General John Braga, who is commander of uh, USASAC, um, General, uh, Major General Omar Jones, who is, I think, Deputy Commanding General of Third Corps, and General, Brigadier General um, uh, Eisenhower, I forget his first name, uh, who is... Jim, Jim Eisenhower. Jim Eisenhower, yeah. So they were involved in that heist, and you were behind this, like, you're the comm having to deal with this. And there's a book written by the, about this story. I don't know if you... Do, do you know there's a book written about it? Um, no, no, I didn't. So our classmate, Ted Russ is a brilliant writer. He wrote the book Spirit Mission. And it's it's like a, a fictional history of stealing the goat and then also um, like experiences in the army. So it's a really fascinating read. So what was that like when a goat got stolen back in 1990?
0: Very embarrassing, very, very embarrassing. The, the Navy Commandant in, 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 traditionally, the, the both service academies put each other off limits. So it's off limits. And we pledged to do our utmost to keep any shenanigans. And so when, when uh, the goal was stolen, it was embarrassing for me. Uh, the alumni loved it, but they weren't the Commandant. The alumni just was ecstatic and I was embarrassed. I had to apologize to the Navy Commandant, which is painful. Uh, is as i recall not, none of the the offender i didn't know who they were Now, <laughs> I, mean, I seen john braga when he was here he was stationed here he and i never never talked about it. jim eisenhower I, I got to know he was here we he never mentioned that he was uh, one of them and um who was the other one who's omar,
1: the omar jones omar, omar
0: jones yeah he it was the first captain the next year right and he never mentioned it so so they kept it a closing guard a secret i never really pushed it because I think probably deep down, I thought, well, oh, way to go. But um, boy, I, I sure was embarrassed. There was no inside story other than my, my embarrassment and my groveling to the Navy Commandant.
1: So the inside. So uh, Omar Jones is DCG of MCOM, just to clarify. I got that in the comment feed from one of my classes. Oh, people. great,
0: great. Yeah, I, when he was a PAO, I, I lost him when, mm-hmm. when he went from
1: there. Um, so. So then um, you, you mentioned there's a good reason for this, right? Because then the next year, what happened?
0: Well, but then, then the, the Navy returned the favor. Now, that was a little different. Um, they were Navy officers led the, the raid. And uh, apparently they were the Navy SEALs that were on the faculty at Naval Academy. And they roughed up the, the, the handler of the mules. And fortunately, he didn't press charges. He could have pressed charges. I mean, he got roughed up, but he just chalked it up to the, uh, over-exuberance. But the Navy broke the code. It's one thing for minis to come up and do it. It's another thing for commissioned officers to lead the raid. And so he, the, their, their uh, commandant had to apologize profusely. He had to bow and scrape to me. And, but he was chuckling, and he said, my alumni I love it, but I'm really embarrassed. I said, yeah, I, I know the problem. I said, but the difference is you got to you got to rein those two navy lieutenants in, uh, and and I, I'm trust. I, I told him I trust you will take care of it. We can't have officers getting involved in, in connect cadet pranks.
1: Can't do that. What was General Palmer saying when the goat got stolen?
0: Uh, that was uh, when uh, it was General Graves. General Palmer left uh, was General Graves.
1: Okay. I thought it was our, well, um, so well, what was your relationship like with General Palmer?
0: It was, it was a wonderful relationship. He was um, a, a great commander, great leader, great vision. He allowed me to command the Corps of Cadets. He would tell me, he, he always called me calm, calm, and then he would tell me what, what he would like. And you mentioned earlier about him being an arbiter. If there were difficulties with the, uh, the senior leadership, the commandant, the dean, the, the, the director of intercollegiate athletics, which is a big player, mm-hmm. understandably, then, then he would patiently sort out our, our tensions, if you will, or disagreements. I have nothing but great admiration. He taught me quite a lot about how to be a senior officer, he taught me an immense amount about my later career as a is a senior officer working for him for a year and a
1: half had you worked with him prior to that in the no, army?
0: no no never i never heard his name wow no he was an armor officer i was a light infantryman and we were different parts of the army
1: you know they say that like the two most um like i wouldn't say political positions but positions that are like where there is like a little bit of like um like you, you make the decision, this is the person, is the calm and the soup, right? Like the the the, the chairman of, uh, or the, um, uh, the chief of the army basically decides that, right? So mm-hmm. it, did somebody kind of like decide, like kind of pick you out and say, General Bramlett, you're gonna go do this because you work with me in these other roles or like, had you been kind of like, was there a mentor that kind of like provided you with that opportunity?
0: No, I was, um, I got a call one day I'm uh, in 25th is an ADC was here on an exercise and said, could you fly to San Francisco and meet General Palmer and interview to be the Commandant of Cadets? I mean, it's that simple.
1: And so, so, I, to, so the soup picked that out then. The well, the, out
0: the no, yeah, the soup. I, I think what, you know, must have happened, uh, and I, I don't, I can't tell you insider baseball here. I think probably there were the criteria, West Point graduate combat arms. I think probably at that time, assistant division commander was doing well, um, but no, I, I flew to San Francisco and, and um, flew in that, and I, I think I got in an afternoon, interviewed, and came right back to Hawaii. We met in a hotel room, and he talked to me about uh, what his vision for West Point is and, and asked me, uh, would I want to be a part of it? I mean, he, he talked about things he was, uh, he was doing. And I don't remember specifically, I, I thought he was a wonderful gentleman. I'd never met him. And I had no idea that I I'd gotten the job. And I got back and they, they called me and said, you're the guy. Awesome. Yeah, it was good.
1: So you're credited with saying in a speech, I got a quote somewhere here. It says women just seem to get it immediately put into a difficult situation. The women I observed in the army instinctively rally those around them to embrace the notion that we're in this together, that women are just better team players. That was your, uh, your quote that you have. Um, and so when you were coming in as the commandant, we had our first female brigade commander ever. Um, right. and you, I imagine you got a bunch of these old school classmates, class of '64. There's got to be some grumblings and saying what the corps has and what's going on. So, what was did you, what was that like? Did you have to sort of like balance between the 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 old guard and 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 the new army at that time?
0: Yeah. Well, you got that right. <clears throat> no, I came in in the the winter, and so uh, Kristen Baker was the first female first captain an extraordinarily gifted cadet and and a very successful army officer, uh, military intelligence. Um, But I inherited, uh, I didn't know anything about her, and and very impressive young lady, uh, great first captain. So I go on Founders Day. Well, I get all the gas. What are you doing? What's West Point doing? Generally speaking, I, I was appalled. It, the 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 questions I got, now, I I wouldn't say it's the majority opinion, but the, you know, it's always the ones that spoke out, and I I told them how impressed I was, and and for good reason. I had a lot of examples of her poise and her leadership ability for the corps of cadets, and what you may remember, uh, most of the alumni didn't in Founder State. She was peppered by phone calls. Uh, to be on TV programs, I mean, she would get calls from the luminaries uh, that she had to be polite and t- declined. We couldn't let her go down to appear on tonight's show or uh, believe it or not, there, there was a, a, um, a TV station in Italy, we wanted to fly her to Italy to interview her. And she handled that with great poise. And so um, I did have to explain that. And then I got got uh, as I learned with from your, actually, your class in the West, during my two and a half years at West Point, watching um, cadets. And I would tell you, and because you, you correctly got that speech, I've given this privately and publicly, women seem to understand teamwork faster than men. They understand forming teams faster. And there are a lot of people have said, well, Ramlet, that's because of this, because of this. I said, I'm just giving you my observation watching the Corps cadets and how women build teams and how men build teams. You see, I mean, you probably think the commandant is, walks around with blinders on, but our experience, so I can speak for all commandants, we have decades of experience watching soldiers at work. And you can watch an athletic team, you can watch a cadet company, you can watch a cadet platoon. And you can, in five minutes, get a lot on that platoon leader, that company commander, his ability, her ability to build a team. You're just going to have to accept it on faith. And uh, I I will stand by what you read. Now, uh, sociologists have, have, have analyzed this and said that men and women catch up at about 29 to 30. In other words, I'm not a sociologist. You'd have to do the research, but I've always been interested in my observation during the two and a half years. The female commanders that I've served with in the army uh, have been uniformly good. Uniformly good.
1: It's fascinating to think back to that time period. Like I think that the initial, like first four or five years of women at West Point was there's a lot of there's a lot of attention, a lot of making sure we get it right and supervision, it, you know, but the, by the time 87, 88, 89 came along, which is when we were there, I think the the story had kind of like lost the headline and there was a whole bunch of things that still hadn't advanced. And um, you think about like the, the women of my class were about 10 or 11%. We hadn't reached that that magical threshold of 20% when you really have like an identity. And some of my female classmates who I've interviewed on this, they talk about that dynamic that, in fact, if they found a a fellow female cadet who was struggling, they would they would want to disassociate because they don't want to get they don't want to get brought into that. And it's just this fascinating dynamic of like being like an honorary guy, you know, like um, there's a there's a, a another book that was written by one of my classmates talking about an event where cadets in the back of a deuce and half were passing around a pornographic magazine. And um, she was relieved that they could feel that comfortable around her, that they would do that. And like at the time, that was her reaction. Like, 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 like oh, I'm good because they feel comfortable enough around me that they can act like this. So I'm okay. I'm, they, they look at me as like kind of cool, which I will tell you will never fly today. But if I think back to the dynamic of 1987-88 and what that was like, that probably did happen more often than not. And so just kind of an interesting sort of evolution in terms of the dynamics of the cadet experience, I think.
0: Um, Yes, and and, uh, I would tell you that many of the um, graduates have talked to me about how they wish in hindsight, they would have reached out to their sisters who were struggling. They said exactly what you said. They said, we thought this was, I toughed it out, you tough it out. And we realized that was, that was wrong. And they were right, that was wrong. Um, I mentioned, it and I wouldn't mention, I think West Point owes the women of West Point certainly from the first class through your class and probably even today a great debt of gratitude particularly the early classes and i'm not going to draw a line at the early classes but what they endured and i'm speaking in general terms and and uh, talking to interviews and, and reviewing records and reports what they endured uh, many of them it is unacceptable it was unacceptable then and it it's an embarrassment for the for the institution. The good news is they persevered and um, reminded us we could be better as an institution. West Point could be better. And it has gotten better over the years. Certainly during your four years when your class was there, there were improvements made, but as you correctly point out, there, there was work to be done. And uh, I'm just gonna stop there and say, we owe the, the female members of the own gray line. Well, a debt of gratitude.
1: They've made us better. Absolutely, absolutely. Sir, so I have one more question to ask you about your experience as a com, and then I want to finish with just some of your thoughts about sure. uh, about the profession of arms and where we are on the class of ninety one, kind of moving to the second half of our of our work lives. Uh, so, but before I get there, I, I would I'd love to hear the inside baseball story of General MacArthur's speech when Cadet John Keenan got up and asked General Schwartzkopf if he would go and have a beer with him in the Firsty Club. What, what, was, what was happening at that point in time?
0: No, they, they, we loved it. I, I, would, I speak for the commandant and the tax and the, the regimental tank officers. We thought it was really cool. Uh, I, I knew uh, and I knew he would, he would thrive at that. And I knew there's no way he's not going to the Firsty Club and have a beer. No, there, there was universal. Um, <laughs> we thought it was really cool when your class to do that. But we thought it was great. I mean, there's there, there no insider baseball other than I think your class roared and we, in our own little way, roared as well. We thought it was cool.
1: I, I can only imagine what it must have been like after that beer and after you walk off to go do whatever you're doing, like have your general's dinner or something, do you all sit back and say, oh, that that's that cadet, you know, what a what a what a what a brave but, you know, stupid thing he did or whatever. Like, what, what was that like? just kind of reflecting on that. I imagine that must have been quite a night.
0: Yeah, no, it was. I, I think it wasn't a brave or stupid. We just thought, what a character, you know, sort of sort of the in between. We, we weren't quite as critical of, of, of cadet outbursts and. and uh, um, um, spontaneity as, as you might think I mean we had a certain Darth Vader face we had to put on on times but I- inside we were chuckling no we were I thought that I, I was there when he, when he obviously said that I thought that was really really cool and I knew Schwarzkopf would be there
1: but John Keenan is still a character he's actually a uh, high school teacher today so he's well, uh, in the classroom teaching history and his son is a cadet currently so I'll be darn. yeah um well, sir, we're reaching the end of our of our time together, and I yeah, am sure so, I am so grateful for your for your talking to us. Before I turn it over to you for some final thoughts, I wanna I wanna highlight. Um, I have a, I have a special gift for you, so I wanna I wanna talk about this gift, and this is from our class. Um, this is a book. Um, it's um, Private Perry and Mister Poe. This is written by our classmate. Uh, major Bill Hecker, who who was killed in action in Iraq, and um, like you, he was a English P, and he studied uh, literature, and he's one of the foremost experts on uh, Edgar Allan Poe. And what's interesting about Edgar Allan Poe, he was a cadet, but what people don't realize was that he was also an enlisted person before he became a cadet. He actually achieved the rank of sergeant major before he became a cadet. So you know when he got kicked out of West Point um, for whatever he did. Whether it's you know the lore is that he came to he came to formation naked, or he you know killed a staff officer or something. Um, he was just basically a cynical, crusty old like prepster, like like we all know. Like he was a former you know former enlisted guy. But um, most of the experts when they talk about Edgar Allan Poe, they discount his military service as not being influential in his writing. And so Major Bill Hecker talks actually and and cross-references the poems and stories that he wrote with his military service and found the connection between military service and his writing. So it's a fascinating read and I'd like to give this gift to you from the class of 91. I'm going to get your personal address and I'm going to send it to you at your home. So thank you. Thank you again for your influence on our class. Um, To this day, it's still so meaningful to us and we're so grateful, and I wonder if you have some final words for us um, to to think through as we move into the second half of our careers, as we become mentors to others, as we navigate this the civilian military divide, the complexity of of of, uh, of our of our years of service, um, our our years in um, in uh, in at war, and how we reconcile it is you know the service of our of our class. With um, the our, our lives going forward.
0: Well, first let me thank you for the gift. It it means a lot to me. Uh, in my study in graduate school, I read every short story, every poem. In fact, I read everything Edgar Allan Poe had ever written. I was not aware of his military background, so I will I will treasure uh, that gift that gift. And particularly since a former English P who we lost uh, wrote it. Um, With respect to to your class, where you are now, you know what your strengths, what your weaknesses are. And one thing when you go through is we talked about a lot of West Point uh, and uh, your classmates are reflecting in these podcasts and your motto, duty shall be done. It doesn't stop. And obviously, as you said, and one thing to remember is you go through even this is back half of your life, or as you said in your notes to me, if you're back nine, um, you will usually be introduced uh, when you would do a speak uh, engagement or anything like that. People will know you're a West Point graduate. And don't forget that. Obviously, you, you, your class has not forgotten that. That will always stay with you. Uh, I've seen as I gone on to do volunteer work, inevitably they'll talk about that I'm a graduate of West Point. A lot of my military career, my military record never gets mentioned, but what does get mentioned is West Point. It's still very much in the consciousness of our country, uh, and and I'm glad you mentioned the civil military divide. Uh, your class, uh, those of you that stayed in the service, those of you that did uh, whatever the, middle, the time you did. You bore an inordinate amount of responsibility that most classes did not have to bear, um, and we're indebted to you. And that what you learned will serve you in good stead. Um, as you get older, your uh, opportunity to to make money, if you will. Will we'll diminish, you'll leave, but have enough our opportunities won't be there. You always can be there uh, to contribute. As I mentioned, uh, I found a great fulfillment in volunteer work. Uh, there's lots of niche. By the way, just one quick footnote most universities and community colleges would love to have any of you as an adjunct instructor. You'd be surprised how much fun it is to teach one course a semester. Of college kids or graduate students, one course. Don't overwork yourself, or one course a year. Most colleges and universities would love to do that. You, you will. It will keep your mind nimble and quick as you get older. So all I can say is uh, I admire your class. I'm sorry, Judy's not here to tell me tell tell you the same thing. Your class is very special in my memory for our association and the continued association of many of your classmates over the years. Most recently, obviously, I'll get to see more Joe Ryan because he's out here. But over the years, people have come up to me and said, hey, I'm class of 91 and we reminisce a little bit. So I'm out here in Hawaii. Uh, I've moved uh, from the North Shore, but I'm readily accessible and the drinks are on the house if you call me.
1: Well, sir, thank you again. I am so grateful and uh, what a great evening this has been and uh, we will treasure this podcast. I'm going to let the credits roll out. You can stick around and I'm going to discontinue the live feed in just a second.
0: Thank you for joining us on this edition of the duty shall be done old grad podcast. Please check back on this Facebook page for information about featured guests and upcoming episodes of the duty shall be done old grad podcast.